0: Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is John Samples. I'm the director of the Center for Representative Government here at the Cato Institute. Today we're going to have a special book forum uh, by De- uh, on a book by David Lampo, A Fundamental Freedom Why Republicans, Conservatives, and Libertarians Should Support Gay Rights. Um, I want to briefly suggest right here at the beginning uh, some of our plan for the day and some administrative issues as we go forward, just to get these details out of the way. Uh, We're going to, for about uh, an hour or so, David and our commentator, Michael Barone, will talk about this book. Uh, Then uh, we'll have about a half hour or so of questions and answers, where you'll have your chance to ask the authors or the commentator uh, what you want to know about this book, then we'll go upstairs and have some lunches. is typical with a Cato book forum. And if you're new to a Cato book forum, let me welcome you. These are extremely interesting, and this book certainly fits the mold. Uh, let me begin with this, uh, our forum today, on a personal note. David Lampo and I have worked here together at the Cato Institute for 12 years. So David is a colleague. And as a colleague, he worked very hard on my second book. And uh, as an editor, worked very hard and, and improved it in a lot of ways and, and kept me out of a lot of uh, problems. So I much appreciate that. But I, I count David also as a friend. So as you can imagine, it's, if your friend or your colleague has written a book, a book that says things and makes an argument that you think really needs to be out there in the public square and is not, uh, it's an exciting day. So it's an interesting and exciting day for me. But there's also another uh, personal element to this. Uh, both David and I, as it turns out, are late bloomers. That is, we, this is David's first book. And uh, I, too, wrote my first book when, uh, as we might say, uh, both David and I, at a mature age. Now, I like to think that that means that David and I learned life's lessons and learned the scholarship and learned the research. And then we didn't open our mouths bookwise, as it were, until it was time, until we had something to say. So uh, as I'm delighted to see that another late bloomer is here. And I'm also delighted by the fact that, as I understand it, uh, David has uh, got another book already in the works. So that really encourages me as a fellow lo- late bloomer that I, too, should continue to write and, and continue to work on my next book. Uh, David is director of uh, publications here at Cato. He's also a lifelong Republican and libertarian activist and a member of the Log Cabin Republicans and the Republican Liberty Caucus. He was a Republican precinct captain for eight years to Fairfax County, Virginia, and was active in the successful anti-tax referendum in Virginia in 2002. This I did not know until today. David was a liberal until he read Conscience of a Conservative by Barry Goldwater in high school. His articles and op-eds have appeared in many forums, the Washington Post, Richard, uh, Richmond Times-Dispatch, Chicago Tribune, Christian Science Monitor, Newsday, San Diego Tribune, and National Review Online. David resides in Alexandria, Virginia. And please welcome our author today, David Lampert.
1: Uh John, thank you for that introduction and Michael for uh, agreeing to participate today. Uh, What I'd like to do in my allotted time is to briefly discuss the evolution of this book and why I wrote it, and then outline outline what I see as the three main themes of the book, and then finally give a brief overview of a few of of my favorite chapters in the book. I completed the first draft of this in the uh, spring of 2011, just as the early Republican presidential primary process was getting underway, and the timing, I think, was uh, quite good. Uh, even then, though, it was apparent that that field of Republican presidential candidates were going to be the most outspoken anti gay field uh, of candidates ever. And yet, there was rarely a word of criticism publicly spoken from mainstream Republicans and the party establishment, including those in Congress, about candidates like Michelle Bachman or Rick Santorum or Rick Perry and their long history of bigoted remarks. It seemed to me that many of them, that is the Republican uh, establishment, were simply afraid to condemn such rhetoric and speak in favor of social tolerance. These leaders not just were not just uninformed about gay rights issues, I think, but uh, frankly scared to death of any discussion of them. And I think that played into the hands and plays into the hands of organized bigotry. So what most analysts expected was going to be another election about economic issues and replacing much of the legislation passed by the Obama administration, like the election in 2010, was suddenly hijacked by the so-called values voters crowd. And social issues were suddenly at the top of the Republican list of of, uh, priorities, often getting the lion's share of attention during those endless uh, number of debates in 2011, such as when a gay service member was booed when asking a question during uh, uh, one of the Republican debates. So in, spri- in spite of the fact that in the race there were pro-gay candidates or pro-gay rights candidates, like Congressman Ron Paul, former governor of uh, New Mexico Gary Johnson, and former governor of Utah John Huntsman, the general perception among most voters in the public was and unfortunately is that all the Republican candidates were slavishly devoted to the religious and moral agenda of the Christian right. And of course the media love this attention to social issues like gay rights and and, uh, similar issues because they love all the delicious sound bites that candidates like Michelle Bachman and Rick Perry and Newt Gingrich provided, which allows the the, by and large liberal media to spin their own narrative that all Republicans are anti-gay. Michelle Bachman, for example, blamed the existence of gay people for not one but two natural disasters last year, both a hurricane and an earthquake. Newt Gingrich, who's had two mistresses and three wives, talked about the sanctity of traditional marriage. And Rick Perry charged that uh, that President Obama was conducting a war in religion simply because he allows gays to serve in the military, but forbids children from praying or celebrating Christmas. While most people find such remarks amusing, if a bit wacky, they are designed to whip, whip up hatred against gays and lesbians in order for these candidates, these particular candidates, to grab a bigger chunk of the Christian right voters who make up a large portion of the Republican base. Now, this kind of rhetoric, of course, has been going on for years before this presidential race started, and it went into overdrive with the advent of the, the uh, very controversial issue of same-sex marriage. It was almost two years ago that I decided it was time to write a fact-based primer on gay rights, specifically targeted to right of center voters, uh, hence the subtitle of the book. To do two things, number one, to challenge the religious right on its own turf and to show that uh, that much of what is derisively or what they derisively call the gay agenda is actually consistent with fundamental Republican and libertarian principles. And number two, to show center-right voters who believe in social tolerance, that not only are they not a voice in the wilderness, they actually represent a majority of rank and file Republican voters. So the book has three major themes. The first one I just alluded to, that many on the right simply don't understand that properly understood, gay rights are in fact perfectly compatible with fundamental Republican principles of limited government, individual rights, and equal protection of the laws. The essence of the classical liberal or libertarian philosophy is simply one of live and let live. All all people are created with certain inalienable rights. The government does not dole out rights depending on what religion you are, what economic class you're in, what your gender is, or theoretically at least, what your sexual orientation is. At least that's the way it's supposed to be. Certainly, most libertarians already get that, and I think that's why they have a special obligation to teach fellow conservatives and right of center voters why gay and lesbian Americans deserve the same rights as everybody else. The second main theme of my book is that because of this constant over-the-top rhetoric that we often hear from the religious right, most people have little understanding of what rank and file Republicans actually believe about gay issues. And I think that the conventional wisdom is that all Republicans hate gays, that they are opposed to gay rights, and nothing could, could be further from the truth. What I discovered in researching the polling data on this topic is that there is, in fact, a huge disconnect between the conventional wisdom that I just mentioned and the reality that a, man, a, rank, a majority of rank-and-file Republicans actually believe and support gay rights, believe in and support gay rights. The reality is this. A majority of rank-and-file Republicans supports nearly all of the major planks in that, quote, gay agenda, unquote, that I mentioned. And I think that's one of the most interesting and important parts of this book. That's the message that needs to go out to all Republicans and conservatives. The loud and hateful voices of the religious right leaders have intimidated and silenced most of those Republicans who believe in social tolerance and their silence must now end. The fact is that polling data going back at least a decade shows consistent and growing support for expanding gay rights, including relationship recognition by Republicans and conservatives. There's a lot of polling data in the book. I urge you to take a look at it, but let me just pull out a few nuggets. Polling by Gallup, for example, going back at least 10 years has consist- consistently shown that 80% of Americans, which necessarily includes a majority of Republicans, favor a policy of employment non-discrimination for gays and lesbians. <coughs> Virtually every other poll shows the same thing, including one just last year by the Center for American Progress that showed 66% of Republicans supporting that policy. But Republican support for expanding gay rights doesn't end there. For at least five years, a majority of Republicans have supported the right of gays and lesbians to serve openly in our armed forces, and a 2010 Gallup poll showed that even 51 percent of conservatives shared that view. Today, according to a very recent National Journal poll, a strong majority of Republicans are satisfied with the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, so that's actually the new normal in the Republican Party. (coughs) Relationship recognition for gay couples has certainly been the most contentious uh, gay rights issue uh, for all right-of-center voters. Yet even on this issue, there is now majority support, according to most polls, among Republicans for either marriage equality or civil unions. A CBS News poll in 2010, for example, showed that 59% of Republicans supported either same-sex marriage or civil unions. And a 2011 poll by public policy polling showed 51% in support. Regarding support, Republican support explicitly for marriage equality, a Public Religion Research Institute poll a year ago showed 37% of Republicans supporting that policy. And a Washington Post news poll, a Washington Post ABC news poll for just this past March showed 39% in favor of marriage equality. And that same journal, national journal poll I just mentioned showed that only 37% of Republicans support a federal marriage amendment, completely uh, different from what the conventional wisdom is. So I think these are all pretty astounding numbers. So the bottom line is this. While the percentages may vary from poll to poll, all of them show a clear majority of Republicans, rank-and-file Republicans, in favor of some kind of legal recognition of gay couples, in opposition to a federal marriage amendment, in favor of open service in our armed forces, and in favor of employment non-discrimination. It is this reality and message of social tolerance on the part of the majority of Republicans that must be spread, and which is why I wrote this book. And I think it must be pounded into the heads of the Republican establishment, which by and large continues to pander to the strident anti-gay groups and leaders, because they are the ones who make the most noise. That's the key to their success. It's time for socially tolerant Republicans to come out of the closet, and I think they are doing so in in ever greater numbers. Finally, the third major theme of the book is the support for gay rights isn't just the right thing to do, in my view. It's also the politically smart thing to do. The voters that most often decide elections, after all, are independents. And the Republican Party has seen a progressive, precipitous decline from independence in presidential elections for the past 25 years. Ronald Reagan won them by a 2-to-1 majority. And yet by 2008, independence went for President Obama by a 52-to-44% margin. Independence, including most libertarians who identify as independents, came back in a big way to Republicans in the 2010 election because it focused almost exclusively on economic issues. And that focus is credited by most political analysts for the big Republican victory that year. What Republicans need to remember about independence is this. They are overwhelmingly pro-gay rights. Like other voters, they don't want to hear anti-gay proposals from candidates because, like most voters, they know gay people as family members or colleagues or friends or neighbors on every major issue, from repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell, all the way up to uh, providing equal benefits for same-sex couples, independents support gay rights nearly as strongly as Democrats. Even on same-sex marriage, a large majority of independents are in support. If Republicans want to earn that support from independents, they critically need to uh, win elections. (coughs) Excuse me. I think they will simply have to change their policies on gay rights issues because independents overwhelmingly reject the outspoken and anti-gay policies promoted by the right-wing and anti-gay organizations that make up a lot of the Republican base. Let me turn now to just a couple of my favorite chapters in the book. Chapter one, or rather chapter two is entitled, Why the Religious Right is Wrong About the Separation of Church and State. In it I look at the belief of most social conservatives that this is a Christian nation. Now, mind you, not just a nation of Christians, but a government and a constitution based explicitly on biblical principles or values. This is a refrain you constantly hear from most social conservative leaders. And yet we know the founders explicitly avoided including religious language in the constitution. In fact, the words God, Bible, Jesus Christ, none of those appear anywhere in the text. And it, that would be an odd, di- an odd thing indeed, if our founding fathers had actually, in fact, tended to run the government according to b- biblical uh, principles. In fact, most constitutional scholars acknowledge that the founders were intent on building what Thomas Jefferson called that wall of separation between church and state, even if that phrase doesn't uh, appear in the text of the Constitution. James Madison, our fourth president and one of the architects of the Constitution wrote that religious beliefs, quote, are not the object of civil government nor under its jurisdiction, a view that is diametrically opposed to the agenda of most religious right leaders today. In the book, I quote a variety of other founding fathers and their objections to a Bible-based state, and indeed some of their contemporaries actually criticized the founders for their explicit omission of religious references in the Constitution. The Reverend Timothy Dwight, for example, who was then president of Yale University, said the United States had, quoted offended providence because we formed our constitution without any acknowledgement of God, unquote. And yet, in spite of this overwhelming historical evidence that the founders did indeed strive for that separation that Thomas Jefferson spoke of, most religious right leaders today continue to mock the very concept of a secular state. As their Ozzy and Harriet world of the 1950s fades from memory for most Americans, the more religious right extremists have become more and more shrill about the massive cultural changes that have taken place over the past few decades and that will surely continue. And their increasing contempt for social tolerance and personal liberty, which are really hallmarks of the limited government they profess to believe in, Indicates, I think, that they are no longer reliable partners or allies for those Republicans and conservatives who actually do believe in limited government and individual rights. I think the so-called three-legged stool symbolizing the Republican, the traditional Republican coalition, <coughs> made up of economic conservatives, national conservatives, and social conservatives, is broken. And I think it will and remain will and should remain broken until social conservatives give up their efforts to remake America into their own heaven on earth. Another issue I write about in this chapter is actually a huge under-the-radar controversy going on within the evangelical community in a section called The Glass Houses of Social Conservatives. It centers around the explosion of divorce in the evangelical community, and the obvious hypocrisy of its members when they pontificate about the sanctity of traditional marriage. The issue was raised not by one of their critics, but by Albert Moeller, Jr., president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He wrote famously on his website in 2010 that heterosexual divorce, quote, harms many more lives than will be touched by homosexual marriage. The real scandal is the fact that evangelical Protestants Divorce at rates at least as high as the rest of the public. Needless to say, this creates a significant credibility crisis when evangelicals then rise to speak in defense of marriage, unquote. I mean, it couldn't be truer. Moeller labeled this hypocrisy, quote, an indictment of evangelical failure and a monumental scandal in the evangelical community, unquote. Professor Mark Smith of the University of Washington published a path-breaking article that same year in the Political Science Quarterly in which he detailed this widespread problem that Moeller had written about, showing that 43% of Protestant evangelicals divorce, higher than almost any other religious group and higher than the national average of 39%. And yet, as uh, the professor points out, rarely do evangelicals propose legislative solutions to this problem. Rather, divorce should be, in their view, addressed within the church, rather than than through public policy. A starkly different approach than they propose to address other biblical transgressions, such as homosexuality, which many religious right leaders actually believe should be recriminalized, even after the Supreme Court ruling, nullifying all remaining state sodomy laws in 2003. This evangelical hypocrisy was acknowledged even by the religious magazine Christianity Today, after Mueller first made his remarkable remarks. Its editor wrote, quote, we cannot very well argue for the sanctity of marriage as a crucial social institution while we blithely go about divorcing and approving of remarriage at a rate that destabilizes marriage. We have been perfect hypocrites on this issue. And yet, in spite of this internal and broad self-examination going on in the evangelical movement, most of its leading spokesmen and the religious right groups that claim to represent them rarely talk about any topic other than homosexuality and gay marriage, which seem to have (coughs) even abortion as the main item on their political agenda. And you can see that if you go to their websites. In fact, it's clear that that an increasing number of self-identified evangelicals and Christians are actually changing their views about gay rights and marriage. So a dialogue with at least some evangelicals, I think, is possible. The 2010 American Values Survey by the Public Religion Research Institute showed that 41% of Christian conservatives support recognition of same-sex couples, mostly civil unions, but 16% for marriage. And an August 2010 poll by the same organization found that fully 44% of evangelicals between the ages of 18 and 29, the so-called millennials, support same-sex marriage. These are big numbers. And I think it's fair to say that the religious right groups don't represent many even in their own flock, even in the Christian right movement. In this chapter, finally, I also have a section, Be Careful What You Wish For, in which I remind religious voters they are not the only ones who believe in basing a government on biblical principles. There is, in fact, a long history of liberal and leftist religious activism in the United States based on a very different interpretation of what the Bible commands. The National Council of Churches, for example, has existed for over 60 years and has advocated the modern welfare state as an example, a perfect example, of Christian compassion and service to others. And the Catholic left also has a rich history of this kind of activism. Even the modern environmental mu- movement <clears throat> is, fondly, uh, is fond of asking rhetorically what would Jesus drive, for example, tying Christian principles to environmental activism and a green economy. So there is, in fact, No shortage of political movements across the spectrum trying to run other people's lives, and the one thing they all have in common is justifying their respective agendas on the basis of, quote, biblical principles, unquote. This, in my view, is precisely why we need to keep organized religion as far from the halls of Congress as possible. Another favorite chapter I'll briefly review is Chapter 5, is the Tea Party Nation Anti-Gay. Most of the media and those on the left would automatically answer uh, yes or hell yes. And yet the reality is that the Tea Party is a much more complex and diverse movement than many realize, even those on the right. It is emphatically not a mirror image of the Christian right, although there is, of course, overlap between the two. From its very beginning, after all, the Tea Party has been mostly about economic issues. It was anger over those issues that sparked the movement to begin with. And it was that relentless focus on economic issues and a deliberate and conscience, conscious avoidance of social issues that was the cause of its great success in 2010. As Kate Zernicki wrote in the New York Times in March of 2010, quote, God, life, and family get little if any mention in Tea Party statements and manifestos. The motto of the Tea Party patriots A large coalition of Tea Party groups is fiscal responsibility, limited government, and free markets, unquote. That focus is also strategic, she added. Leaders think they can attract independent voters if they stay away from the divisive social issues, and they were right. That has clearly been the key to their success so far. And what are their general views on gay issues? strikingly different than those of religious right leaders and organizations. <clears throat> Again, a few nuggets of the, of the data. The CBS New, New York Times poll in 2010, for example, showed that while only 16% of Tea Party mem- members favored marriage equality, 41% of them supported civil unions. Now, one would certainly not expect to find 57% in favor of legal recognition of gay couples at a Family Research Council convention, I would wager. The Public Religion Research Institute's 2010 American Values Survey, the largest of its kind, by the way, in surveying Tea Party members, reported, reported similar findings about Tea Party members. 53% in support of relationship recognition for gay couples. This large pocket of support for same-sex recognition should come as no surprise given what the Pew Research Center found in in its own polling of the Tea Party movement. Only 42% of self-identified Tea Party members agree with the conservative Christian movement, while 46% have no opinion of it or haven't heard of it, and 11% opposed it. Striking confirmation, I think, that the religious right and the Tea Party are anything but synonymous movements. Part of the reason, I think, for this much broader acceptance of social tolerance is the large number of libertarians in the Tea Party movement. I actually outlined three studies in the book that show that approximately half of Tea Party activists are libertarians versus the more traditional uh, conservatives that uh, most people think make up the movement. And in fact, Cato has an upcoming policy analysis study by David Kirby and Emily Eakins entitled Libertarian Roots of the Tea Party that confirms this widespread libertarian participation and the greater social tolerance that goes with it. And while the top religious right organizations like the Family Research Council and the American Family Association campaigned to defend DOMA, the uh, Defense of Marriage Act, many Tea tea Party supporters actually support efforts to revive the Tenth Amendment and give to states the freedom to decide marriage uh, matters such as marriage law. Many supported the federal district court ruling in Massachusetts in 2010, for example, by Judge Joseph Toro that overturned Section 3 of the Defense of Marriage Act that forbids the federal government from recognizing valid same-sex marriages in those states that have adopted it. That decision on 10th Amendment grounds was just recently upheld by a federal appeals court and appears headed for the Supreme Court. <laughs> uh, I did. I have a section on uh, chapter 8. Uh, I urge you all to read that. I'm running short on time, so I won't go into that. But that's actually a report card in all the major Republican candidates that ran for president, detailing in some uh some of their background statements uh and it's uh, for many of them it's far worse many of them did not get a uh, passing grade finally the good news about the republican party i think is that it's changing <clears throat> certainly not as fast as i or others would like but it is i detail a number of uh things in the book in chapter 7 i think uh that show uh how it's uh, evolving And I think uh, there are other examples, the eight Republican senators, for example, who voted to uh, overturn and repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell in December of 2010, and they were key to that victory. To the four Republican state senators in New York who put marriage equality over the top in that state. To the overwhelmingly Republican legislature in New Hampshire that just recently voted to keep same-sex marriage earlier this year. It had been legal. The religious right activists up there tried to get it repealed. were confident that they would get it repealed. And most Republicans in the state house rejected that. And so uh, New Hampshire continues, continues to have same-sex marriage. Republican office holders, I think, are finally catching up with rank and file Republicans and the majority of uh, Americans. And all I can say, it's about time. Let me just close by reading. Uh, A a quote from Barry Goldwater, who was John alluded to, was one of my political heroes. Quote, mark my word, if and when these preachers get control of the Republican Party, and they're surely trying to do so, it's going to be a terrible problem. Frankly, these people frighten me. Politics and governing demand compromise. But these Christians believe they are acting in the name of God, so they can't and won't compromise. The religious factions that are growing throughout our land are not using their religious clout with wisdom. I'm frankly sick and tired of the political preachers across this country telling me that if I want to be a moral person, I must believe in A, B, C, or D. Just who do they think they are? I will fight them every step of the way if they try to dictate their moral convictions to all Americans in the name of conservatism. Thank you.
0: Thanks, David, and thanks for mentioning that upcoming Cato study uh, by Eakins and Kirby, and so everyone can keep their eye out for that. It is a, a real eye opener, and I think will be in many ways the most definitive study of uh, that particular <clears throat> political movement. Our next, our commentator today uh, really does need no uh, introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. You'll you'll know Michael Barone uh, from his uh, post as senior political analyst at the Washington Examiner, or for having been over a decade a contributor to the Fox News channel, or perhaps also from his earlier career at US News, Reader's Digest, Washington Post, a a career uh, at the highest levels of American politics and commentary. Uh, But I'd like to mention uh, three of his books, because I think uh, the books he has written are important and continue to be and should be read today. Um, his most recent, I believe, is our, entitled Our First Revolution, The Remarkable British Upheaval That Inspired America's Founding Fathers, a book about the glorious revolution in Britain, which everyone should know more about. Uh, his History, Our Country, The Shaping of America, From Roosevelt to Reagan. We live in historical times, knowing more about that past, I think, now, and this book is an excellent introduction to the politics of that period. And of course, uh, Michael is the principal co author of the annual Almanac of American Politics from the National Journal Group, uh, the leading, I think it's fair to say, commentary. And uh, in, when you read that book, you wonder how does Michael know all of that about every damn district in the country? It's an amazing book uh, that I recommend to you. Michael Barone. Thank you.
2: Well, John, thank you very much, and thank you for the kind introduction. Uh, I, uh, you noted that both you and David have written uh, books at mature ages. Uh, your first book, uh, My Almanac of American Politics, of which I'm co-author, uh, was written uh, as long ago. The first edition appeared 40, more than 40 years ago. Uh, I like to point out that it's highly unusual for the first <laughs> edition of a book of this nature to have been written by someone at the age of four. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but there we are. In addition, uh, I am also, I come to you as a recovering liberal, uh, and uh, the, with uh, my transformation having come late at a later stage in life than David. So, um, and and uh, you know, I guess I'm being asked here in part because in one of my Washington Examiner columns, I on, uh, the, on the same-sex marriage issue, I made the point that I was in favor of same-sex marriage for. Much the same reasons enunciated by Jonathan Rauch in his book published oh about a decade ago, uh, gay marriage. So um, I got a little feedback from some of my examiner readers on that, who seemed to be surprised. I felt that it was uh, in, that I should disclose that. Um, I'm also a recovering pollster. I was in public opinion polling business from 1974 to 81, um, and uh, I found myself as uh, issues of gay rights came into politics. I found myself consistently wrong about where public opinion was going. I mean, during the 1992 campaign, uh, when Bill Clinton came out in favor of uh, gays, openly gay people serving in the military, uh, I thought that would inflict terrific damage on him in that campaign. turned out I was totally wrong about that. It basically was a minor issue that was ignored by the voters. Uh, Therefore, I thought when he came into office and proposed actually implementing uh, gays in the military, Uh, that he would have no political problem. In fact, it caused something of a firestorm, I think in part because people said that shouldn't be your first order or one of your first orders of business. Uh, So I was consistently wrong about that. So I thought, well, you know, I've been wrong in both directions on on this issue. It's one where I really don't seem to understand the American people and where they're going uh, and have not written about it, uh, substantially since, but in the 20 years since, uh, I was wrong in both directions, I think we've had a huge change in public opinion on this issue, uh, and in fact, probably the big, or on gay rights related issues, uh, probably the <laughs> biggest change, uh, or at least one of the biggest changes that I've witnessed in my lifetime, um, and I think you know growing up in a, the America of the 1950s and early 60s, this was uh, and I think properly known as an era of conformism. It was an era of cultural uniformity. We had had those unifying experiences of a great depression uh, and particularly of World War two where we had sixteen million men in military service in a country of one hundred and thirty one million um, we had it was a It was a time when we uh, Really, uh, everybody was supposed to be average and normal and so forth, Uh, and any uh, breach of that was considered to be uh, a big problem. It was a time when uh, homosexuality was really taboo, was ridiculed. I am not familiar uh, in any detail with the scholarship of some people who've written about attitudes towards gays over history, but my impression uh, from such reading as I've done and from my other surveys of American history is that that um, war and post-war period was probably uh, a time when Americans were more hostile to homosexuality and what they called deviance. Uh, Than at other points in our history, that uh, we were really uh, we went through an unusual period of uh, uh, of lack of cultural diversity, if who will, uh, or at least uh, uh, sanctions against it. And you had you know you you had people like Robert Kennedy ridiculing Gore Vidal for being homosexual at a party. This was considered standard sort of thing, polite company. Uh, gay jokes, uh, disparaging jokes and remarks uh, were just fine and polite company and, uh, at every stage and nobody uh, objected to them in any serious way. Uh, and I think that uh, David Lampo has done us a surface by uh, illustrating this big change in public opinion that we are hugely, um, hugely larger percentages of Americans are now accepting of gay people and gay rights, and I'll use just the term gay and not go into gay and lesbian or LGBT or whatever just for purposes of being concise, Um, gay rights in a way that uh, simply uh, was unthinkable in the America in which I grew up. Uh, I never expected to see anything like this happen. Uh, And we do have a, a considerable age break on this. I think this is... Perhaps the issue that I've observed over forty or fifty years of observing polling data in which there's a bigger difference between age groups uh, and to summarize uh, you know if you ask opinion on same sex marriage um, the uh, over sixty five group uh, their basic attitude can be summarized as yeah uh, if you ask the under 30 group their basic attitude is well yeah uh, and, and simply seen as uncontroversial. And what this means, and David has provided some of the data here, is that this cuts across the lines, uh, 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 the partisan lines, uh, so that both parties are uh, diverse, if you will, in their uh, in their constituencies are different on this. And we saw an illustration of this recently uh, when President Obama kind of wrong-footed himself by... Uh, announcing that he had evolved sufficiently to come out in favor of same-sex marriage. Uh, the day after voters in North Carolina, a state he carried last time and wants very much to carry, voted 61 to 39 against it. Uh, backers of gay marriage may have thought, gee, you know, it would have been nice if the president had come out for this before North Carolina voted in this referendum rather than after. Uh, but he, president was trying to balance two constituencies, both of whom voted for him heavily and turned out heavily in 2008, uh, but whose turnout is uncertain uh, and volatile, and, and he wants to ensure their turnout, and that is young voters who, as I said, are heavily in favor of same-sex marriage by margins of two to one or better, uh, and black voters who have been against same-sex marriage. In the exit poll on the California referendum in 2008, uh, we saw that uh, white voters and and Asian voters uh, came out, voted for same-sex marriage. That is against Proposition 8 uh, by a 51-49 margin. Hispanics voted against same-sex marriage by a 51 to 49 percent margin. Okay, it's chugging ahead and winning the election at this point. And black voters voted 70 to 30 against same-sex marriage. Now, those numbers are probably different among black voters, and President Obama's uh, endorsement uh, of the uh, issue has probably changed some minds. But, you know, he did take time to do conference calls with black preachers, uh, and there's a lot of uh, pulpits in black churches now where the preachers are very much against uh, same-sex marriage. And I think there's a resentment on the part of some quantum of black voters and leaders um, for when supporters or advocates for same-sex marriage analogize their cause to the Civil Rights Revolution. The blacks will say, look, the treatment, you know, homosexuals haven't been slaves by being homosexual in the United States. There is a difference in experience, and that's a pretty strong argument. Uh, in any case, it's an effective one with some black voters. So... Uh, The president was in the position of the old-time politician who said that some of my friends are for the bill and some of my friends are against the bill, and I'm always with my friends. Um, He rolled, you know, the North Carolina referendum, got him enough flack that he decided, uh, including from many of his money givers, um, you know, uh, who were strong backers of same-sex marriage, that he should change his position. Uh, The Washington Post, I think, made note that... uh, what what, about a quarter of his bundlers are gay Um, you know some gay people for some gay people this is not a front-range issue and for some non-gay people it is so I I don't think we should assume that people's sexual orientation automatically determines their position on this issue or the strength of their conviction or the priority they give it but uh, I think that's for people to determine for themselves uh, but it is uh, it is a problem. So, on the Republican side, uh, polling has shown, and perhaps David will contradict me if I'm wrong, that about two thirds of Republican voters are against same sex marriage, but about a quarter are for it, something on that
1: a quarter. Uh, uh,
2: a quarter, and perhaps higher. And um, so, Republicans have uh, some, you know, Republicans have a split constituency on this as well. Uh, you know, obviously, the plurality there. Are for, uh, against same sex marriage, uh, but you've also got pluralities or majorities that are for some form of civil union, that uh, are in favor of non uh, uh, discrimination on the basis of uh, sexual orientation and employment and so forth. Uh, those are positions that uh, uh, are back now. Uh, I think, you know, and particularly for young people in this room. Um, this is hugely different from the America, not only of the 1950s and 60s, but the 1970s and the 1980s. Uh, I mean, this is a big change. Um, you find uh, the, um, you know, it's, uh, uh, it, this is, uh, it, this is, these issues were simply not issues before. I mean, you uh, David was actively pointed out to me in the California Referendum Proposition 13 on holding down property taxes in 1978. There was another referendum on the ballot that year, the Briggs Amendment. A Republican assemblyman from Orange County uh, backed an amendment that showed uh, that banned gay people from being teachers and would require the firing of teachers who were identified as homosexual. Uh, and that was, uh, seemed to be getting towards majority support in California not as liberal a state then as it is now. Um, interestingly, a former governor was persuaded to come out against this and to uh, and to cut a spot for it against it, I think, Ronald Reagan in 1978, uh, which uh, may have made the difference in defeating the Briggs Amendment at the polls. Uh, but that was kind of a daring position. Uh, it was uh, the, the opponents of the Briggs Amendment went to Governor Reagan had a meeting with him. Of course, Reagan had known many gay people being in the entertainment business and had friends uh, who were, and he just thought it was uh, unjust to hound people out of their jobs because of uh, their sexual orientation, and he took that stand publicly even though he was preparing to be a a candidate for the Republican nomination once again. Uh, I think that says something good about President Reagan or Governor Reagan as he was then, but it also says that the fact that he came out for this position was considered a surprise, was was noteworthy, was vote-changing, uh, because in the environment that we were in, um, we were uh, uh, that was worthy uh, of comment and something that most people wouldn't have expected. Uh, you simply didn't talk, these issues simply weren't issues if you could go back in time and talk to voters of the 1970s or politicians of the 70s, 80s, where are you on same-sex marriage, the response would have been, huh, what are you talking about? Uh, nobody was out there advocating it uh, in any way. Um, I would take issue here uh, with David's statement that the Republican field of candidates was the most anti-gay field uh... in history i would argue that the field of republican and democratic candidates by the standards of today's issues uh... in all these years was more anti-gay than the republican standard because none of them were for same-sex marriage none of them were for civil unions most of them were uh... if you would brought up the issue of saying that you could criminalize homosexual behavior would say well sure um, and uh... that was true of democrats it was true of republicans mm-hmm. um, you know like the abortion issue, but for even longer, uh, you know, uh, same-sex uh, uh, homosexual behavior was an issue of criminal law, and more than it was anything else. And the key question was how much you wanted to criminalize it, and to what degree and what the penalties should be. So, um, I think it's uh, uh, it's an issue today that uh, is very different from what it was in the past. Uh, My own view is that uh, we are going to move towards more as a nation, towards more acceptance of uh, same-sex marriage. Uh, When you've got young people taking a libertarian stand on a cultural issue and old people taking a strong stand against it, uh, the question becomes, will the young people have the same attitude as they grow up and get older? Uh, California had an initiative on marijuana smoking uh, in 1972, Uh, as I recall it was defeated 66 34 but young voters were in favor of it Um, those voters kind of changed their minds as the years went on you did not have any increase in the support for legalization of marijuana for California for several decades until really the marijuana advocates came up with the idea of medical marijuana and we are now I think de facto legalizing marijuana in some cases uh, but those people changed their mind as they you know they grew up, they had children, they decided it wasn 't a great idea. I think on this issue it 's one where people are going to uh, continue to he- take the stand that they 're taking that support for same sex marriage will persist uh, in this millennial generation, and they will inevitably be a larger part of the election of of, of electoral politics uh, in years hence and the current over sixty five generation will be a smaller part of electoral politics so I think uh, I think support will continue. Uh, you may want to uh, take into account my bad record at predicting trends in public opinion on gay rights issues when you're assessing this. I would not put myself forward as, a, uh, as an expert. Um, let me just conclude here with uh, a couple of statements uh, about um, this issue generally. I think David uh, pointed rightly to the fact that uh, you know the the, uh, the prevalence of divorce among many opponents of same-sex marriage, um, or the constituencies in whose behalf they tend to uh, they tend to uh, speak, they, they believe that they speak. Um, I think that there is some truth to that. In my article uh, last August in the Washington Examiner, my column on this issue, I made the point that uh, I think that. You know, I I am concerned about threats to the family. I share the views of people like uh, in the, the Family Research Council and so forth about things. I think that uh, lack of two parents is a grave handicap to children. That is a statistically uh, valid factor. But I'm also aware that the number of uh, gays uh, in America is relatively small. Uh, the best evidence we have, I think, is the presidential election poll every four years in the last three elections because you fill it out yourself you don't have to talk to an interviewer press a button on your phone or anything else and you deposit the paper in a box and uh, It's a very anonymous questionnaire So if you're fearful of stigma or whatever else uh, you have no motive to hide your current, your actual status or belief. Uh, 3% has been the number in in each of the last three elections. Interestingly, it is just about the only demographic group in which John McCain got a higher percentage of the vote than than George W. Bush in 2004. I mean, it went up from something like 23% to 25%, but that was against the national trend. Uh, And it's also uh, evidence that that gay voters are not as, say, monolithically one-party voters as black Americans tend to be. Um, but the, m- my argument that I made was, look, uh, I, I, you know, I'm concerned about damage to the family, but it seems to me that there's less damage from a few people who want to get married than there is from the much larger number of people who get divorced or who have children without getting married in the first place. Uh, I think that's a pretty strong argument, and I think David has made an argument similar, if not identical, to that uh, in his book. Um, let me let me just conclude with uh, uh, the, by distinguishing my attitude, if I may, from toward religious right leaders and uh, outspoken opponents of same-sex marriage from David's attitude. Um, I do not see them. Uh, he used the term hateful to characterize some people. Uh, at least at this point uh, I think certainly you can go out there and find people who hate gay people uh, who want to have you know cap- the Iranian capital punishment uh, for homosexuals or people who engage in homosexual sex uh, I think though that the large majority of people on both sides of the same sex issue a marriage issue are taking the positions they do because they think it will be good for people generally Uh, I think that people who share my view that same-sex marriage should be legal and we should change the status of marriage from what it has been for many years uh, think that it would be good for people generally, and I think there's a strong argument in that behalf, but I think people who are against it also believe that their position is good for people generally, and they can say to us, look, you know, uh, the burden of proof is kind of on those who want to change a very long and enduring institution. Uh, I think that the case uh, that... That, uh, that that David is making uh, has at least persuaded me uh, but I, I do want to say that I uh, respect the good faith of very many of the, the large majority of Americans who take an opposite view Thank you
0: thanks now it's time for questions, and I'm going to exercise the power of the chair, if not the right of the chair to ask uh, David the first question, which is carries on from his presentation I, I I really wanted to hear the chapter about the candidates, but the Republican party doesn't have the scorecard uh, they don't have a candidates now they have a candidate so governor romney what's this, what's your story on him and also to sort of uh, get us Moving uh, toward the future here, do you have any views about the potential uh, vice presidential candidates that my uh, Santorum and Gingrich are generally thought not to be real candidates for the vice presidency? Uh, is there other other people that you um, have looked into or have a sense mm-hmm. of their views?
1: Uh, well, I was afraid you were going to ask me about Governor Romney. Um... <laughs> Sorry. In the uh, in that chapter eight, this the uh, scorecard. I I go, I go back and review their public statements, votes, etc. Uh, and in, in Governor Romney's case, of course, it goes back to all those famous 1993 or so uh, pro-gay statements and pledges when he was running against uh, Ted Kennedy. Of course, all his religious right opponents also went back to those statements. And were convinced that he was still a a, a, a closet pro-gay a candidate uh, he, he's in my view he's a tough nut uh, to crack he um, when he started uh, running for president uh, even before he left the uh, office of uh, governor, of course he opposed same-sex marriage when the when it blossomed in Massachusetts with that uh, Supreme Court decision. Uh, he supported uh, banning it. I mean, he ultimately accepted it, I think, because he, ha- he had no choice, really, although others were advocating you know, to go to the ramparts. Um, after he left office, he made a few comments about um, supporting uh, employment non-discrimination, although not at the federal level but at the state level. He, he often tailors his remarks to the audience uh, in which he, to, to which he is speaking. So you saw him during uh last year uh when he'd be in front of uh the family leader or uh at a uh a values a voters values summit uh right here in uh, d c he would say all the right things <coughs> and yet when he would go to uh New Hampshire for example, he openly talked about supporting domestic partnerships or uh a certain kind of uh, uh package of rights for gay couples. Um and I'm sure he did his best to keep uh you know that as below the radar as possible because he was constantly being attacked by Rex Santorum and others for any hint of pro tolerance uh he gets a d uh he got a d in my uh report card actually he may have gotten a d plus because of that partnership um uh, statement he made in new Hampshire um what was the
2: timeline on the Republican legislatures' rejection of attempts to repeal same-sex marriage—that was
1: earlier this year, possibly in about March or so.
2: So it was after the New Hampshire primary yes. was conducted. That's right. my recollection, but I wanted to. Right.
1: Um, so so
2: I, that was a simmering issue there because the Democratic legislature—it was, passed in passed fact, I—it was one of the few states that has the legislature. And a number passed of passed them,
1: right? Marriage. A number of them were asked about it, and uh, I believe Romney was asked about it and gave his usual talking point about. Uh, traditional marriage, and I believe supporting a federal marriage amendment, which he does. So, you know, I, I don't think his views uh, are going to get much better on this. Ironically, though, I argued in an op-ed that I'm uh, working on that Obama's coming out explicitly for same-sex marriage actually is a is a plus for him and gives him some opportunities that I doubt he'll take advantage of, but uh, I think they're there. Uh, there was always this question of the intensity of support by right-wing or religious right voters. And uh, most of them have finally warmed up uh, to him, simply because he's the candidate, or will be. Um, But when Obama came out and said he explicitly supported uh, same-sex marriage, that really sent them over the edge. They they were already. angry about the uh, DOMA decisions on his part. So I think most of those voters now are anybody but Obama voters. And I think that affords Romney uh, the ability to come out and try to reach out to those moderate and independent and women voters who would like to see him say, for example, uh, a a pledge to support employment non-discrimination for federal employees, something that Bush and Clinton and Obama all did. Support uh, a tax equity act that would allow gay couples the same tax privileges on uh, health insurance benefits. Um, you know he's evolved on every other issue. I would love to see him evolve on the federal marriage amendment and finally figure out that uh, being for federalism and the Tenth Amendment are actually good Republican positions. Um, that said, I don't think he's going to do any of that. So. Uh, I'm just going to take a wait-and-see attitude on uh, on his part.
0: What was the <coughs> vice president? <coughs>
1: oh, yeah. Well, I love Christie. Um, I-, I would vote for him in a heartbeat. Um, that's not an endorsement by the Cato Institute. <laughs> <but. I> mean, <coughs> um, IRS, if you're out there. And- <laughs> uh, governor is actually going to be the keynote speaker. It was announced today at the Republican convention, so that's a good thing. Okay.
2: Um,
1: I-, I don't really have any preferences. Um, and unfortunately, even if they have more socially tolerant views on these issues, they'll disavow them once they become the candidate. So,
0: Well, let's see what our audience, the questions uh, they have. As we go into this, please wait till you're called upon by me. Wait for the microphone. This is the crucial thing because uh, remember, everyone in the room has to hear you, and we're also going out over the Internet or over television. And uh, please announce your name and, if you like, your affiliation. And I would also uh, say, please make sure that your question is in the form of a question. Thank you. And if you want to direct it to one or the other of our uh, panelists. Let's start with the gentleman down here in the middle.
3: We'll try to get to everyone. Hi. uh, My name is Steve Hankin. I have no affiliation. Um, I have a question of whether the... Position of of trying to promote gay rights, so to speak, is being done on on this left-right continuum too much, which to me means I either like gays or I dislike gays, and to me the the better the argument is the, the pure libertarian argument, which is essentially live and let live, which means that I don't have to like gays, I don't have to associate, I don't want to, if I don't want to associate with gays, that's not my personal belief, but I'm saying if if that's somebody's personal belief, they could still um, take the libertarian attitude, well, I'm going to let them live the way they want to live, because I want to live the way I want to live, and therefore, whether I want to associate with them, whether I want them to teach my children, I still would afford them, the the same rights, which is essentially the pure libertarian. And my my question really is, aren't aren't you guys too much, um, looking at this from a sort of a left right continuum, um, as opposed to what I would say is a a libertarian continuum, which doesn't you could love okay. them or hate them, but okay. it doesn't mean yeah. You, okay, thank you, thank you, David.
1: Um, well, I, I, I mean, I think you distilled the uh, the libertarian position pretty well. Um, but I don't think that contradicts the, the, the battle lines, uh, really, that we have. Uh, I certainly don't, and I don't think most gay rights leaders say uh, gay rights means you have to have a gay as a best friend. Um, they're talking about political rights, the traditional rights that the gay movement has talked about, from don't ask, don't tell, uh, public employment, non-discrimination, being allowed to work for uh, the federal government instead of being kicked out uh, like they were in the 50s and 60s. So it's just a term of convenience for equal rights, equal legal rights for gay and lesbian Americans. To me, it does not imply, well, you have to personally like gay people.
2: I think well I would just add to that however that I think a large part of the vast change in public opinion has become uh, has happened because uh people have come out as gay and people and and non-gay people know a lot more gay people as gay than they did 20 years ago right. and they don't have horns and they don't necessarily look like the most outrageous person a local TV station confined in a gay pride parade. They're just your friend, your relative, your neighbor uh, who's okay. And the idea, I think that greatly fortifies politically the case against discrimination, even though uh, by the government in various ways, shapes, and forms, even though from an abstract point of view, the argument should be just as strong whether you knew gay people or not. Right,
1: the latest polls have shown that about 60% of Americans say they know a gay person. Uh, That that would have
2: been, what, 20% 20 years ago or something like that. And in the
1: 50s or 60s, no one would have admitted to that. So there's been a huge (laughs) cultural shift and change, and that's driven this expanded support for gay rights. So
2: Yeah, of course, in the 50s, they they did know some people who were gay, they just didn't know they were
1: gay. Right, right. So, uh, you know, back to your question, Uh, yes, I think that ultimately that's what freedom means. I I don't have to like you, I don't have to associate with you, um, uh, I don't have to believe what you believe, but if you live in a free society, I have to grant you all the same rights that I have. Well that just I think that's just another term of convenience for that live and let live uh, philosophy that you talked about. That's what let's, I mean. Let's by
0: go on to let's go on to some other questions. The lady by the door, please. Yeah, with her hand up.
4: Uh, Kathleen Hunker Cato Institute. Uh, the difficulty I find among conversing with religious conservatives is that once the government recognizes same-sex marriage and certain other gay rights, the government then has to enforce that recognition onto the general populace, and so you see cases like the Christian photographer in New Mexico, who was forced to, uh, yeah, who, who was forced photograph to a photograph think, a wedding. I think the Thirteenth
2: Amendment takes care of that case. Well, also
4: the case in New Jersey where you have uh, a church that was denied tax-exempt status because they refuse to uh, rent out a gazebo to a same-size couple or a more recent case in New York which is a Catholic hospital currently undergoing litigation because they don't recognize uh, uh, certain health benefits for same-sex right. couples. well
1: you, you know I and I, I totally understand those positions and I agree with the religious right conservatives uh, on them but when they talk about issues like that it's really a, a bait-and-switch why would you talk about the, uh, the photographer um, when you're talking about same-sex marriage rights. I mean, you're you're comparing apples and oranges. In fact, most of these same people believe in non-discrimination laws. They're perfectly fine with them when they apply to race, creed, religion, uh, or any other category. It's only when you talk about sexual orientation that suddenly they have this newfound concern for freedom of association. I think they are grand hypocrites on that issue. and. While I agree with them, uh, they could at least be consistent about it, and say, uh, "Well, I, I don't believe public accommodation laws are correct, and uh, I would like to repeal them and not have them for any any group of people."
2: Let, let me, dis- not l- let to me do disagree that. slightly on that. Uh, I, you know, our, our civil rights legislation, public accommodations, uh, fair housing laws have exceptions for cases personally close to you. If you if you have a apartment unit in your house, you're not necessarily covered by them and so forth when you're out to rent. You have the right to discriminate against, not rent your basement apartment to somebody you consider icky for whatever reason, including those otherwise prohibited uh, by law. And uh, I think that you know, in these cases, you know, should, uh, Clergymen be required to propitiate at marriages they disapprove of. Well, of course not. That's a free exercise of religion case right, and there. I think when that's the red- Supreme I- Court was unanimous on uh, strength, you know, on the, on the law on that January case involving who is a minister, um, you know, the New Mexico thing is an obvious outrage. I mean, it's against the 13th Amendment to require somebody to photograph a wedding when he doesn't want to photograph that wedding.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, Wherever they have same-sex marriage, uh, they have bent over backwards to exempt churches and religious organizations from participating. And they absolutely should. If a a church doesn't even want to allow gay people to be uh, members or to walk through its doors, that's fine by me. But don't don't talk about, say, well, I'm gonna prevent uh, legal uh, equality for gays and lesbians because sometime in the future, somebody might pass a law that says, you know, Uh, This lady has to photograph gay weddings. Uh, Those are separate issues, and they should be treated separately.
0: Uh, Just a brief remark. The 13th Amendment ended slavery throughout the United States. (laughs) Uh, The woman in purple, I believe, right on the aisle. And I'll work my way this way. And back.
5: Hi, my name is Emily. Um, I found in discussion with social conservatives, typically what they argue naturally is that Marriages between a man and a woman. And I think maybe one of the issues with this is <coughs> that it's become such an emotional argument and a lot of the time social conservatives find when they're arguing with gay people, it just becomes too personal. Um, do you think that maybe it'd be better to argue just from a logical standpoint that once the government takes a stand and takes a stance on marriage and grants certain benefits to married couples, that it no longer holds that religious connotation and just through societal development, marriage is no longer understood as a traditionally religious institution. Do you think that if you argue it that way, people may be more receptive to viewing it as something different overall and as a legitimate right that all people deserve?
1: Well, I think that an important thing, I talk about this in the book and many other advocates of legal equality have done so, you have to make the distinction between that religious and ceremonial part that you talk about and the legal or civil part um uh, having being religious and having uh, a, a wedding in a church uh, is neither sufficient uh, nor necessary to have a legal marriage only that civil portion of marriage has the legal implications and that's getting the marriage license which you can then uh complete or consummate by going to a justice of the peace doesn't say anything about religion belief in god having children um and so I think that's a fundamental mistake that a lot of opponents of same-sex marriage and gay rights in particular make. They, they think of marriage, they think of their own marriage <clears throat> and that it's this holy union and they think of their religious values and what they were taught and all that. And, and I get all that, but they are then crossing the line because of their personal views. They're then crossing the line from the religious aspect of marriage over to the civil and saying, well, because I don't, my religion says that you're uh, not a God-fearing person or a bad person, that you don't get access to the same legal contracts and rights that I do. I, you know That's a common mistake. It's certainly been pointed out enough to social conservatives and religious right people, but unfortunately, their religious values, their private religious values, usually trump their alleged uh, belief in limited government.
2: Well, you have you know this when you're talking about marriage sexuality you're talking about things that are very personally important to people and they're going to have strong feelings about these things and based you know they've bet their lives on doing things a certain way or they are as many these evangelical groups very regretful that many of the people uh, many of People who have similar beliefs are behaving in ways that they consider wrong. So you're going to have strong feelings. It's one of the reasons why I urge um, you know, uh, trying to conduct this debate in a way that is respectful of others who take a different view and, and so and, you know, and, and the fact that they have they, they are positively motivated, uh, even though one disagrees with them. The, inter, the, the the we have less of an intersection of the of of the state into the church in, than some countries. Uh, some about twenty years ago, I was in France and uh, staying and renting a house in Normandy, and family came over, and we visited a church in Caen, the large city in Normandy, which I'm not pronouncing with a proper French accent. And um, there was a it was a Saturday. There was a wedding ceremony. Some very well dressed kind of bourgeois French. You know extended family there and so forth the priest was officiating at this uh, lovely cathedral and so forth and after the wedding vows are done and so forth they stand down the priest stands down and here comes the authority of the state a clerk comes in right there in the church Hmm. and and you know has them sign the registry and so forth and my parents who are staunch atheists and very opposed to religion we're appalled at the idea of a government person coming into a church, just physically being there and performing official duties uh, in a church setting. That was in view of their in their view of I and mine, a violation of our principle of free exercise of religion without state supervision. Thank you very much. So different countries have different attitudes. Gentlemen, four up
0: and three in.
3: My name is Stephen Shore. If Nixon could go to Beijing, why can't (laughs) Romney go to Dupont Circle?
2: (laughs) Maybe he can.
1: I take it that's a rhetorical question.
2: Well, the president doesn't, the president doesn't, uh, you know, take stands on um, same-sex marriage and, and... You mentioned the Family Marriage Amendment, which is obviously a dead duck, is never going to pass Congress, is never going to pass 38 legislatures. I object to presidential candidates' uh, volunteering positions on constitutional amendments or being questioned by them, because the president doesn't actually have any role under the Constitution in constitutional amendments, except as a citizen of a state who can vote for members of Congress and members of the legislature. He's in the same position as the rest of us, except... I'm in D.C., so I don't vote for members of Congress or a state legislature, but right. <clears throat> but it's, uh, you know, it's not a presidential role under the Constitution to pass constitutional amendments. Ask your member of Congress, ask your state legislator.
1: I know that's why I think he could just as easily stay out of that issue. It's kind of disingenuous to say, uh, I'm going to work for a, uh, a federal marriage amendment because
0: he has literally uh, no but you legal have the, role.
2: you have the balanced budget amendment. We have economic the amendments they talk about, too. You know. Well, they
0: talk about everything, including promising things that violate the laws of physics and other mostly <coughs> economic laws, so we can't really expect restraint. The gentleman here on the right. Thank you. I think my question is basically to Mr. Lampo. Uh, Mr. Lampo. Uh, How do you feel, or more importantly, how do you think the Republican Party feels, and how, uh, even more important, libertarians feel, about Uh, the matter of woman's right to choose? Now, I recognize that when we get into the woman's right to choose, we have a question of another life potentially involved, uh, which you don't have in the gay marriage issue. But I'm talking about under Roe v. Wade, whereas during a period where, unless it's a religious matter, there is not a separate life. What is your view on that, and how do you compare it with your view on gay marriage?
1: Well, I hesitate to, since it's such a, 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 in many ways, in most ways, a different topic, I hesitate to give my my view on it, but uh, even libertarians are split on that issue. Uh, So it is a, in that way, it's kind of a very unique political, political issue, because even strong libertarians, because of that element of life, that second life you talk about, it kind of complicates the whole issue. Uh, I am pro-choice, and so, of course, opponents of my book and my message will say, well, see, he's not a real conservative. Um, But that's my view on it. Um, I I think it's my view is consistent with the traditional libertarian view about personal rights, control over your body, uh, but I fully um, respect the position and views of people who are uh, uh, pro-life. Uh, I do agree with the conservatives that the government shouldn't, uh, shouldn't fund it or subsidize it in any way, and so my, my pro-choice liberal friends uh, don't like that about my views. Um, but I think, it's, I think they're consistent.
2: One of, the, one of the interesting things about public opinion of the millennial generation, people currently under 30 and so forth, um, is that they're, you know, by large majorities in favor of same-sex marriage, they are more in favor of restricting abortions uh, than, at least slightly, than their elders. And I think, um, you know, there's a number of reasons for that. The sonograms, technology, uh, it becomes harder to argue that the fetus is not, in some sense, a human life. And I think the other factor, which is that everybody born in America, 38 years or younger, could have had his or her life ended by a legal and inexpensive abortion. Um, it seems to me if they reflect on that, they might not think so well of abortion. I, I, it's just speculation.
0: Uh... Woman here, three in, and four up.
4: Thank you. Uh, Maggie LaFalse, I'm an intern here at the Cato Institute. Um, I was curious, there are two kind of general arguments among libertarians um, regarding gay rights and gay marriage. One is that um, the federal definition of marriage should be amended to include more people. and the other is that rather than constantly renegotiating the inclusion and exclusion criteria for um, marriage, we should just kind of abolish this federal monopoly on the institution and just kind of live and let live and let people do what they want. So I guess I'm curious as to why we're focusing so much on the former framework rather than the latter.
1: Well, I think because we have something called the Defense of Marriage Act, I mean, I if that, uh, if that were repealed, the federal government would essentially uh, not be involved in that issue. But um, the opponents of uh, legal equality want to get the feds involved even more by passing a federal marriage amendment. Now, Michael's right. I, I think it has little chance, uh, but it is a, Zero. Uh, a real, really important position on the part of uh, people like the American Family Association, the uh, Family Research Council, and that the usual suspects, so to speak. I don't say that disrespectfully. Um, and that's an, another reason why I think it's kind of gratuitous for the various Republican candidates, but especially Governor Romney, to uh, to say he supports it and will work for it. Um, so if you want to disengage the federal government from this issue, uh, repeal DOMA. Um, and I think that's certainly a good start. Well
2: then you have then you have a situation which would have this interesting um, characteristic, which is that same-sex couples who have le- marriages recognized under state law and query whether where the marriage was done or where where they live, where which it is, um, you know, uh, would qualify for things like the marital deduction, the the fact that your incomes are merged and people from other states wouldn't. It would be an incentive for other states to change their laws, and the opponents of same-sex marriage would say it's unfair. That's how we got the marital deduction in the first place because community property states, states which inherited Spanish and continental law, French continental law, had married couples uh, in the post-World War II period able to combine their, their usually one income of the husband. Not many women were working then. Uh, and get a lower marginal tax rate than people in other states, at which point Congress stepped in and created the same legal situation in each state.
1: Right. Uh, You you know, to that point again, you know, there are some who do believe in a federal marriage amendment, but it's a very different kind of federal marriage amendment, uh, basically saying that marriage is a fundamental right and it should be uh, by constitutional amendment, uh, granted or extended to all couples in all states. and we
2: may get a, a Supreme Court decision saying as much, right?
1: We may, but, you know, certainly that, to me, that, that amendment process would be even more impossible and more difficult than the, than the uh, uh, anti-marriage, federal marriage amendment that's, that's lost several rounds in, in trying to get that started.
0: One so. more question. Uh, gentleman right here in the middle. Or toward the middle.
3: <coughs> Hi, I'm Henrik Tem from the American Enterprise Institute. And I wanted to ask you, uh, despite your polling numbers that there is a large and increasing support for gay marriage, most of the successes for the pro-gay rights movement have come through the courts, not from legislatures or direct votes like Proposition 8. Do you think that this is the most effective way to promote the gay rights agenda going forward? Or should there be a greater focus on changing voter behavior?
1: Well, I mean, certainly the latter, apart from any moral question. Certainly the latter for uh, longevity uh, would, would be preferable, but um, you know, when the courts overturned Jim Crow, uh, I don't think it was proper to make a, an argument, well, gee, most southerners should have voted on that question. Um, I think that's a good analogy. There are certain inalienable rights, as we know, and I think the courts certainly have a proper uh, role in, in affirming those rights we all know courts can go overboard and judges can make all kinds of decisions based on their personal preferences instead of the constitution uh or its general presumption of liberty that that many people believe it uh it extends to people uh, <clears throat> um so when the legislature does it or a court does it on the proper grounds i think that's just as valid as if uh as if the people vote on it
2: i i'd have to say in conclusion uh i'm I'm dubious about the court case. I mean, I think it, it's, uh, you know, we'll see if the Ninth Circuit, which has uh, basically ruled that there's a right to same-sex marriage, is, is affirmed by the Supreme Court, which it may well be, or reversed, as it often is. Um, I think I I sort of stand with Jonathan Rauch on legislate that it's preferable to do this by legislature that means that it won't happen everywhere in states like Alabama and Mississippi where 78% of the people are either black or white evangelical Protestants. They're not going to pass same sex marriage in the legislature anytime soon I can tell you. On the other hand, we have seen legislatures in New Hampshire, in Connecticut, New York, pass same-sex marriage. So it's uh, we saw that it survived the political process and, in effect, be endorsed by voters in Massachusetts after being imposed by a court. We've seen it come close in New, Jer- uh, in New Jersey, where Governor Christie wants a referendum. Um, and I think as you know, as the millennials become a larger part of the electorate, I think in time we're going to see more acceptance. California, the vote was 52-48 against in 08. I think if it came up this year, California would vote in favor.
1: Same with Maine. And I yeah. think
2: it's so far it's only been the opponents <clears throat> of same-sex marriage that want to bring it to uh, referendum. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it may be time in some states for proponents to bring it in referendum. and. Uh, and, and take they their chances for the voters, because I think their chances for the voters, but it's gonna, that's gonna be a step-by-step process with problems. Let me just conclude by noting uh, that I am also, I'm a resident fellow at American Enterprise Institute, so I'm from a rival and friendly think tank, and uh, I'm always happy to be here at Cato. Thanks
0: very much. And I'd like to thank both David and Michael for appearing today. Our book today has been A Fundamental Freedom by David Lampo. It's available from your favorite bookseller. And I'd like to see everyone upstairs. And great. And thanks. (laughs) join me in thanking our (laughs) panelists.